Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Justin Quirk. Earlier this week, the government proposed new legislation to stop UK businesses from using products grown on illegally deforested land, a new move that could help mitigate climate change by making the illegal destruction of rainforest less profitable. The idea is that firms would have to carry out due diligence on their supply chains and say where key commodities like palm oil, rubber and soil came from, or face fines. It's a surprise move in some ways from a Conservative Party, which is still enduring a quiet internal civil war over green issues, with Michael Gove pushing for, quote, full-throated environmentalism, while the party's old right wing is still dismissive of what David Cameron once called, cover your ears children, green crap. But are moves like this enough? And with Extinction Rebellion about to launch a new series of actions on the climate emergency, should government use carrots and sticks to change business behaviour, or is even more decisive action needed to fight climate change? Simon Lewis is Professor of Global Change Science at University College London and the University of Leeds. He's an expert in deforestation and climate change, he's a plant ecologist by training, and he travelled all the way up the Amazon to do his PhD. He's here with me today. Hello, Simon. Hello. So to get things rolling today, what's your immediate top-line reaction to this legislation? Um, Is it a positive thing, and are there precedents for laws like this already? Well, I think it's a cautious welcome. It's good that the government's talking about this. It's good that it's proposed a consultation, but the devil is really in the detail. How big will the companies be that this applies to? Who will decide where illegal deforestation is actually illegal? And beyond that, there's a question about how this fits with Brexit trade policy, because we've already seen that environmental regulations get dropped as part of the horse trading over trade policy and and, and tariffs. Will these measures go the same way or will they come in so late that Brexit trade policy has already been largely set uh, before this new law comes in and when it will have minimal impact? So it's up in the air, but a good, a good, uh, a good start. And from the draft text, um, as it exists at the proposal stage at the moment, do we know what sort of companies and products we're talking about here? Is it specific uh, products and substances? Are the companies cutting off at a certain level? Do we have much detail on that yet? There's no detail. It's a very broad consultation. But what we do know is that in the Amazon the primary driver of deforestation is soy production. And about 90% of that soy production is going into animal feed that's coming into the UK. So it's our chickens, burgers, sausages that are the primary driver of this this, uh, commodity that's coming in. For Southeast Asia, it's a bit different. It's palm oil, and that's in about 50% 50% of packaged products in supermarkets. So that's a, a really complex task to get those supply chains deforestation free. And then in West Africa, the big driver is coca production. So mostly for chocolate. So it's, it's, it's different things and different companies 
in different places. And the size of the company by turnover or by uh, a more number of employees is going to have to be quite low to capture all of those. Would it have made more sense to have had just a completely straightforward ban on things like palm oil? I think a straightforward ban could have unintended negative consequences. So particularly palm oil, it's very productive. It's one of the world's largest produced vegetable oils. So if you had a ban on that and switch wholly to other oils, we would actually increase the demand for land for the agricultural products we need. And that's in a way one of the limitations of this uh, legislation is this is all about supply. And we also need to talk about demand for these products that are coming from agriculture and and driving uh, the expansion of agriculture into rainforest lands. And if we don't get the demand down as well as as well as dealing with the supply, then we will continue to have this pressure of expanding agriculture into these amazing forests. Obviously, with where we currently stand post-Brexit, as welcome as this legislation is, it's likely to be Britain acting on its own, not in concord with the EU or any other sort of international bodies. So does a country of our size, even if we pass this legislation to as high a standard as we can, does that really matter in the great scheme of things? Or is it likely to just be a primarily symbolic gesture? I don't think it's symbolic. And that's partly because the UK has a presidency of the UN climate talks uh, for this year and the the coming year until November next year for the delayed talks, which will be in Glasgow. The world is looking for leadership from the UK. If we don't have this kind of legislation and have an environmental free-for-all in the UK, then that will be argued by people largely on the right in Europe, in the EU, to weaken their standards. So actually, UK does still play an important role, I think, in moving the global debate forward. And we are still tied to to the European Union, I think, because we're its closest neighbour. You referred there to Britain's role in global leadership. Um, I want to ask, what's your general assessment of our government's approach to things like deforestation in particular and climate change in general in in a sort of leadership capacity, because there seems to be, we seem to have been quite progressive on certain things, you know, around sort of the cycling agenda, sort of urban mobility, things. I think the government surprised people to some degree with that. Are we looking to take more of a global lead on this stuff, do you think? Well, the UK is is seen as a, a global leader because we have reduced our emissions by 41% on 1990 levels for uh, carbon dioxide. So it's seen as a leader because we've done a good job of decarbonizing electricity by closing coal-fired power stations, replacing some with gas and a lot of renewables coming on stream. So that's been good, but the progress in other areas has been very, very limited. So actually we've done well in the past, but we're on track to miss the next five-year carbon budget as part of the climate change legislation in the UK. So it's a it's a really pivotal moment as we stand on the world stage about are we going to get all those other sectors driving towards net zero or are we going to flounder and make piecemeal measures? Uh, so this next sort of 12 months as we come out of the, the COVID crisis will be really 
pivotal to see where this government's going. And it's it's unclear to me as a, as, a, as someone watching. Why and why have we slowed down on that? Are there, are there particular things that we've changed or we've eased off on if, um, if we were doing pretty well, but we're now going to miss some of those targets? Well, we took some of the big, big, relatively easy decisions like closing coal-fired power stations with the most polluting form of electricity production. But all the more uh, difficult tasks like switching to more cycling, public transport and electric vehicles has been much slower. And the Conservative government has flip-flopped on housing, uh, which is also heating buildings has been a, is a big source of emissions. So there was a green building legislation that was supposed to come in in, in 2016, and that was abandoned. But now we've seen for uh, in response to the COVID crisis that we're now seeing home insulation coming back onto the agenda. So there hasn't been a consistency of policy, which is what individuals, consumers, companies all need to see the drive is down and drive is down to net zero. But we haven't seen that consistency from this government. It's, it's, it's flip-flopped and the same with the, the Cameron government. Do you think consumers really understand what the labelling of product sources means? I mean, for most people, it amounts to what's in your Kit Kat. Okay, it's got palm oil in it. But do most of us actually know what that means? Or are we informed enough to make those decisions? I think the the level of information given to the public is very poor on labelling. It's obscure. It's not clear. Um, it's not even clear for basic things around our, our health, about sugar and salt content. and there needs to be clear information. And if we step back, the single most inefficient use of land and the use of land with the greatest impact on climate change is production of meat and dairy. So it's about two to 40 times the land area to produce a kilogram of protein from animals as it is from plants. And it's about 50 to 100 times the amount of greenhouse gases for that production of protein. So if we want to reduce the footprint of agriculture globally and keep those forests, we have to reduce demand, which means reducing our meat and dairy intake a bit. And that's something that everyone can do. And it's the biggest thing diet wise that we can do to reduce our impact both on the forests and on the atmosphere and all these climate change impacts that we can see all around us and are going to come hitting us harder later this century. Obviously, palm oil is, I think it's fairly high in consumers' minds. We had the big Iceland ad campaign a couple of Christmases ago that based around it. Um, It's the world's most widely used vegetable oil, and it has this terrible, possibly deserved environmental reputation. Can you explain why it's so bad compared to other similar substances? It's grown on rainforest land, so huge carbon emissions when you chop those trees down, burn them, send that carbon into the atmosphere to then plant your uh, oil palm trees. Secondly, that or those oil palm trees in Southeast Asia are often on peatlands, which are a type of soil that has been accumulating carbon for up to 20,000 years. So that 20,000 years of carbon accumulation being removed from the atmosphere is then released through the burning. And when the soil, that soil is dried out, it slowly oxidizes to to the atmosphere. So you have enormous environmental damage from converting those particular forests to palm oil. 
And then we have the wildlife impact. So obviously we all know about the orangutans, but around 50% of the world's species are in these rainforest areas. So they are real treasure troves for biodiversity and the world's richest ecosystem. And then there's the human dimension to this, which is that lots of indigenous peoples are still living in these forests and adjacent to these forests. And they are, they are pushed out by this conversion to uh, oil palm. So it's a, also a human rights question as well as an environmental question. And without uh, labouring the point too much on Kit Kats, but they are an interesting test case. Um, Nestle was suspended from a palm oil sustainability group recently, uh, can no longer say it uses sustainable palm oil. Uh, they've just dropped out of fair trade chocolate to go to the Rainforest Alliance certification. Boycott Kit Kat looks like a fairly easy consumer decision. Uh, but an Extinction Rebellion campaigner would say that it's meaningless virtue signalling. Do we need bigger action than simplistic consumer boycotts or can these things develop real momentum? I think we need both things together. It's not either or. We can buy something different from a Kit Kat and we can boycott those companies that have the worst uh, reputations and the, the worst environmental impacts. But we obviously need much bigger action to get to net zero. So climate change impacts are huge. Just this last month, we've seen 50 million people being displaced in India and Bangladesh and over a thousand deaths. We see fires uh, across the Amazon in California, Siberia, and now starting in Australia. We're seeing major environmental impacts from climate change. And this is just from one degree of warming. And this isn't the new normal. It will get worse and worse until greenhouse gas emissions reach zero. So we obviously need sustained pressure on governments and corporations to get down to net zero emissions. And that is going to have to come from social movements, groups like Extinction Rebellion and the school strikes, because they move issues from being peripheral to becoming absolutely central and things that demand attention and demand to be dealt with. So I think there's a there's a really crucial role for both things and they shouldn't be seen in opposition. We've been talking about these issues in a, uh, a sort of factual and a scientific context, but obviously the bigger sort of backcloth to all this is that climate change itself is heavily politicised as a subject. You were part of the campaign to remove a misleading article in the Sunday Times in the wake of the ClimateGate emails leaks in 2009. Can you briefly remind us what happened there with that incident? Oh, yeah, that was a, a long time ago uh, now. Well, after the um, uh, journalists were trying to trawl through the uh, IPCC Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports to try and find mistakes to discredit the entire science of climate change. They thought they'd found a mistake uh, about a statement on the Amazon that it was vulnerable to uh, drought and then that drought could drive the forest to become a savanna leading to a tipping point and a huge flux of carbon into the atmosphere and an exacerbation of climate change. Uh, I was interviewed about it for the BBC and the Sunday Times and I gave my opinion saying it could have been better written and it could have been better referenced but it was basically factually correct. And I checked the story with the Sunday Times and they read it out to me on the phone. And then actually I got on a, a plane to go to Congo, uh, to the rainforest to do uh, my field work for the next two months. And the story came out and it had been completely rewritten, put on the front page that this statement was completely wrong. Uh, and I was the 
expert quoted to say that it was completely wrong. It was uh, nothing that I said and had been completely twisted. Uh, so I complained on the website underneath, say this is incorrect, and they deleted my uh, the, my, my statement under their on uh, their comments. They uh, declined to acknowledge or respond to the letter that I sent for publication. So I then complained to the press complaints commission, as it was called, uh, then and fought a long public battle to get this corrected, because it was important to fight back for the integrity of science against these attacks trying to undermine it. Uh, and eventually, I won the case. Do you see, um, I don't want to be overly optimistic here, but do you see some sort of cracks in that wall of scientific denialism happening? I mean, in, in the UK, climate denial seems to have remained a more fringe opinion than it's been in the US. It feels like over the last year or so, we hear a lot less from people like Nigel Lawson, um, who was sort of flat out anti-science. Um, do you feel optimistic that the sort of evidence-based argument that you and your colleagues have been making is becoming accepted to the degree it should be? I do think that we hear less of those uh, voices, the Nigel Lawsons of, of, of this world. They seem increasingly out of touch as people can uh, see the impact around them now. But if we look at COVID-19, which in many ways is a kind of climate change style problem of exponential impacts uh, and, and big changes required to, to, to stem the, those infections, we've seen it's kind of turbocharged what's happened in sort of climate science, where you've rapidly seen skepticism about whether the virus is real, what causes it, uh, whether vaccines are a good idea, and those things are rapidly proliferating online. So I, I don't think we can think we see less of Nigel Lawson, so everything's getting better. It's it's a complex, messy world out, out there, and conspiracy theories are doing surprisingly well in my mind. And longer term, how much does our success or failure in making this argument and winning this argument hinge on Trump being defeated at the end of this year? That's a good question. I I mean, I really fear a Trump second, uh, second term uh, because the first term is about shifting out the checks and balances to be able to do the bigger things that he wants. So we'll have a much freer run with the second term than he had as a first term. And he's been incredibly damaging to sort of evidence-based policy and, and, and clear public discourse um, over these last four years. I, I don't think that we would, we would see the Conservative government being so fast and loose with uh, the facts had we not seen Trump, who is much more extreme, doing this on the world stage for years now. So I, 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 really, I really do fear a, a second term. And, and, and they will, the US will be out of the Paris Agreement if he does. And leading on from Trump, obviously another leader who has followed his uh, example, to I think quite a great degree, is uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil. Um, he's ridden that sort of climate-denying populist wave, um, and he's notorious for the abuse and mismanagement of Brazil's rainforests. Um, in sort of lay terms, what has his period of rule done to Brazil's environment? It's a catastrophe. Nothing short of that. I mean, obviously, they've 
huge and devastating impacts of COVID-19 across the Amazon now because there's been very little to, done to, to stop its spread. So it's now reaching some of the last forest-dwelling indigenous people in the Amazon. In terms of uh, forest area, he has essentially said to those people engaged in illegal deforestation, it's okay and we, we won't chase you. So what we've seen since he came to power is an enormous spike in forest fires and deforestation. Those impacts will be yeah, felt, felt for, a, for a long time. And as someone who, under, I mean, you understand better than most people how rainforests function as ecosystems and sort of living organisms, is that damage reversible to any degree? And if so, how? I mean, what would have to happen tomorrow and how quickly could it regenerate or replenish? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question. So the good thing about the tropics is that it's great for tree growth. So trees grow very fast and you can reestablish around 60% of, of the carbon in a tropical rainforest in just 20 or 30 years if you just leave it alone and protect it from fire. So, so they can come back in terms of uh, carbon storage and removing some of the carbon in, that had previously gone into the atmosphere when it was deforested, but they are not so good for wildlife. And they're also quite vulnerable to the next change of, of government or the next change of land ownership to reconvert that back to farmland. So we shouldn't rely on forest restoration to get us out of the mess of continuing deforestation because those primary forests, those intact forests, are storing so much more carbon than we see in these regenerating uh, forests. As I mentioned, Extinction Rebellion are set to re-emerge after a sort of period of inactivity. They're often criticised as a protest group for offering nothing to the public but doom and sort of fear factors and no real solutions. Um, as someone sort of looking on, what contribution do you think they're making to the debate? Is it positive, negative? Is it a mix of the two? Uh, I think it's overwhelmingly positive because it's getting people talking about climate change and talking about the ecological emergency and, and species extinction that we rarely talk about. And even if people are getting annoyed, it's in the air. It's, it's, it's part of the discussion. And I think that some of this focus on them being only about doom is slightly misplaced because their first demand is, you know, tell the truth. And their second demand is, you know, act, act in accordance with that truth. And their third demand is that uh, there should be people's assemblies uh, citizens' juries to decide how that's implemented. So actually, it's saying to the public, we've all got a role to play in deciding what these policies are to get us to zero emissions fast and deal with this this climate emergency, which is a much more nuanced message than you often get from uh, the media reports about their actions. Finally, just throwing forwards, we've got the COP26 Climate Summit uh, happening in Glasgow in November. So we can hopefully end on a slightly more upbeat note. Do you have any reasons to be optimistic that we'll make positive moves on climate at that? I think the COVID-19 crisis has shown people that societies are more vulnerable than they might have thought. And I think that feeds in positively into thinking about 
what kind of society we want going forward into the future and what kinds of things post-COVID will be invested in uh, to get the economy back on track and create create jobs for people. So I think there's some hope there. I think the second bit of hope is that the delay, while not good from a climate perspective to keep delaying things, will give countries more time to craft better nationally determined contributions. So what they will do as part of the Paris Agreement, they have to put in enhanced actions uh, before the next uh, the, the next meeting, COP26. And I think a bit more time to do that, to digest where we are in the world and to up their contributions, to up the ambition level is potentially a positive step. Simon, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. There's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday with the main panel podcast on Wednesdays. You can get each podcast early and without adverts, plus an enviable array of Bunker merchandise too when you back us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. 